Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Thanks so much for joining us again. My name is Amelia and we have a really cool guest on the show today. We have Dr. Renee Gorham. She's a lecturer in physics at the University of Newcastle and she also does nanotech research. Welcome to the show, Renee. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I really love that you think I'm cool. (laughs) There's so many cool people, but you're like definitely quite high up on the list today, I have to say. Could you start by giving us a bit of an outline of what is your job? It sounds pretty cool. Yeah, well, back when I was a child, I never would have thought I'd be doing the job I'm doing, which probably happens more than uh, not. But yeah, so I'm an academic at university, so I lecture in physics, um, but I also have a research component, which is probably what I fell in love with uh, first. Um, So yeah, I do research. I have a research group with PhD students and sometimes honours and undergrad students that want to do some research as well. Uh, And yeah, we do lots of administrative roles as well so it's it's a mixture of things but mainly what I'm known for within the university is my teaching skills for physics. Fantastic because physics can be quite a um, challenging one to teach and yeah it certainly can so uh, I like to try and um, I'm a bit different in my um, lecturing skills so I don't do the traditional big class lecture at the front of the theatre especially with COVID happening a lot of it's got done online. So trying to keep that engagement in particular with physics um, is quite difficult. So I've started to do some animations and some different strategies to teach different concepts. Um, and we'll see how that goes over, over 2020 and 2021. Fantastic. Well done for adapting. Have you got, just on the off chance that there's any other lecturers listening who'd like a little bit of teaching inspo, have you got any advice or tips or tricks that you like bringing into the classroom? Uh, definitely just trying new things is what I would go for. Sometimes it's a bit scary, but you sort of learn and adapt like what we've been doing this year. So just trying new things, trying new technologies and also talking. So, you know, if you're interested in what I'm doing, discuss with me because I'm sure there's something that you're in- interested also in doing as well. So, yeah. So as a lecturer, what university levels are you lecturing in physics? What sort of concepts in physics are you teaching? Yeah, so I, I teach throughout an undergraduate career. So I've, uh, currently I do most of my teaching in first year. So I teach um, advanced physics one. So that goes through uh, the general concepts that you need to then go into second year and third year. But it also teaches uh, engineers within the university what they need to become engineers. So they often uh, depart physics in first year and sometimes second. I, I also teach second year courses as well as third year courses but we can sort of adapt as we go so it depends on what needs to be taught um next year i'm teaching biophysics which i'm excited about for third year but this year i I taught thermal physics in second year but i won't teach that next year so it just depends on who wants to teach what we try and mix it up are you able to give us a bit of an outline of what biophysics is that sounds like a really interesting combination of things yeah, that one is quite interesting and it hasn't been taught uh, in at University of Newcastle before, so it'll be the first time. Um, it sort of goes through some statistical mechanics, which is just, uh, I guess, looking at statistics, but qu- quite in-depth, <laughs> lots of stuff that 
uh, that students probably haven't heard of before, especially in first year. Um, the stuff that I'm teaching, I'll start introducing some basic mammalian or bacterial cell stuff that haven't been taught. So most physics students will not do biology. So I'll start with just the basics in biology and then go through some applications. Um, I might even throw in some of my research in there just because that's of interest to me personally. Well, it's got to be interesting to you so that you can pass this passion on to the students as well. Yeah, yeah. So we've been developing some nice biophysical uh, experiments. We're trying to think of outside the box ideas for the practical laboratories because a, a lot of what we do is hands on. So we've even looked at getting a worm and measuring the conductance of the worm (laughs) using an iPhone. (laughs) So that will be quite interesting. I really want to hear more about that. That sounds so cool. Is it it okay for the worm? Uh, Well, that's probably the funniest part is that we douse them in a bit of vodka or ethanol and uh, it... And, and it makes them a little bit numb so they don't feel it and they should be fine afterwards to go back into the little worm kingdom but yeah it just measures the nerves within it and gives us a nice little little um, electrical circuit that's possibly the most fantastic physics biology experiment i've heard of in my entire life <laughs> that's amazing i'm glad that you're the first one that's probably heard it <laughs> So hopefully it will translate to the third year students. Oh, I think you'd have to be a pretty cold-hearted person not to be engaged by that. Is that a trade secret? Are we able to share that with the audience of the podcast? Yes, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, I might not encourage people at home to do that just yet. We might see how your experiment goes first. <laughs> yeah, they would need some pretty good uh, noise-removing software and also equipment, so it wouldn't be very easily done at home. <laughs> it's a shame. I'm sure we could adapt it somehow. Okay, I'm very excited for your students for next year. That's <laughs> that's sounding really awesome. Are you able to tell us a little bit about your research as well? Yes, yeah, so my research is a little bit different to the conventional physics research that you would think of. I got stuck into nanoparticles or nanotechnology when I was starting my research career back many years ago in my honours year. Um, and, yeah, so I just started liking the fact that we could sort of manipulate atoms to become little small clusters or balls and yeah it's quite unique when you have a lump of gold it's like this gold lump you you visualize it because you've seen it all in movies and stuff but when you start breaking that gold down you get to a nanoparticle which is only a few nanometers and it has all these really interesting properties because of how small they are and how much surface area there is so when I started doing nanotechnology, that's the sort of area, I, well, sorry, research in general, that's the area I sort of snuck into. Um, so I've been making my own nanoparticles, ones that are fluorescent or glow, um, but also I've started looking at nature's own nanoparticles. So every cell in our body, or majority of them, will release their own little nanoparticles, little mini-me's that uh, we can interrogate. So what my research is looking into is like sort of extracting these little nanoparticles and seeing if we can determine whether that particle comes from a cancerous cell or not. So that's a sort of nutshell of my research. Um, And I do lots of little other little areas in the same sort of realm, but that's my interest at the moment, yeah. So are you able to communicate to people how big a nanoparticle is? Yes, yes. So this is a quite a difficult one to sort of get your head around. So if you think of one metre, one nanometer is one billionth of that. So we can go straight down to the size of a glucose molecule, which would be 
in the realm of a few nanometers, maybe one nanometer. So it's really quite small. You can't see it with a microscope and you can't see it with your naked eye. So if you were to think that a marble was one nanometer, then one meter would be the same as the earth type thing. So that's the sort of scale we're looking at, a marble and an earth. <laughs> Very small. Okay, teeny, 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 tiny. How do you create something so tiny and how do you then not lose it? Yeah, so that's really good question because the losing part is really like, what are we, how do we know we we're even looking at nanoparticles if we can't see them? Um, like I lose my keys and they're, you know, the size of my hand. I can't imagine me trying to be in control of a nanoparticle and then find it again. Yeah, okay, yes, exactly. But making it, uh, they've, there's lots of research being done in the area of sort of making it, or we call it synthesizing these nanoparticles. So the ones that I've made are of gold nanoparticles, which I mentioned before. So uh, when you think about making them, what we end up with is a little cordial or red solution. It's really quite different or unexpected. So you would think that the gold would still look like gold when you make nanoparticles, but they're not. Um, it's really quite easy. You just do a little solution-based type method and you end up getting this little beautiful co uh, coloured solution. And the harder ones are probably the fluorescent ones. So these we call quantum dots. And if you've heard of uh, the Samsung LQ LED TVs, well, they've already got quantum dots in them. So they use these quantum dots um, and what's special about them is that you can change the size of them by one nanometer. So you can go from three nanometers to six nanometers in diameter um, and you'll get different fluorescent colors. So you'll go from blue to red. So we can use this tuning factor like they've done in TVs and we can get different fluorescent nanoparticles and get like a barcode type system where we could attach the colors to something specific. We might want to target, I don't know, I'm just going to, say a protein, and then we might want to target the membrane of a cell um, with different colours and we can actually differentiate between the two. So that's an area where I use the quantum dots and they're really cool. I love quantum dots. So <laughs> They sound really, really awesome. Is it ever frustrating? Like are you able to see them or do you have that frustration of knowing you're working on something cool that you can never actually quite see? Yeah, well, that's where we get to really nice microscopes. So you wouldn't be able to see these in a light microscope because they're too small. But what we use to visualise things at this scale are electron microscopes. So instead of using light, we throw electrons at them. And we can either allow these electrons to pass through them or we can let the electrons uh, get reflected off. And so we're able to visualise them using uh, electron microscope techniques. Um, and another one I really like is atomic force microscopy. So we get this little tiny, tiny tip at a nanoscale tip, and we can raster this across the surface. So it'll just go backwards and forwards. Yeah, almost like a, uh, what's the old musical um, that played the records? Like a little record player. And we can actually get the topography, and that will then tell us the size of the nanoparticles and if we actually have them. So there's a few techniques that we can use to, to visualise them. But, yeah, they're very expensive. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would imagine so. You mentioned you had been working with gold as well as the quantum dots. What was the appeal of creating gold nanoparticles? Yeah, so I started making gold nanoparticles in my PhD, which is 
I think it's six years ago now, <laughs> um, where I first started synthesizing them. Um, the reason why there's so much research in them is, well, A, they're really easy to make. So I've done the same outreach where we've, I've gone to schools and we've made gold nanoparticles, which is good. Um, they're good. We can get good sizes, so we can make a specific size of interest. So, for example, if I want it to go through a cell membrane, I can make them less than 10 nanometers. Um, but if I want them to stay out, I'll make them a bit larger, depending on what I'm looking at. So they're the two main reasons. But then also, because they're nanoparticles, their characteristics are really interesting. They, they can be quite reactive. Um, so they could be used as a catalyst to speed up a specific reaction. So, uh, for example, in batteries, or you could shine a laser on them um, and, and use them for, this is probably not my area, but use them for sort of cancer killing cancer so you can shine a laser they'll heat up and kill the cancer and I think there has been some nanoparticles that have been either in clinical studies or finished clinical studies for that type of application but yeah there's an array of applications that they can be used in just because of how simple they are to make. Completely fascinating. So gold is quite a I guess stable thing normally and it's like in the periodic table it's part of this sort of stable section does that change when you create nanoparticles from it and it becomes a lot more I guess active yeah yeah so if you thinking of the easiest way to sort of visualize it but I guess once you get to that scale where you've just got a few atoms so in bulk material there's you know heaps billions of atoms in there but if you just go to a nanoparticle or nanocluster with a few atoms those atoms are going to be exposed to the surroundings and because of the way that the nanoparticle sort of forms itself, uh, it might be stable, but there's more likelihood that those atoms will want to react with something else because it's so small. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, it's it all links into the concept that when things are really, really small or really, really big, then the standard rules don't necessarily apply and you need to start thinking a little bit differently. Absolutely, yeah. So cool. Thank you for sharing. That's Really, really cool. I know we went off script. <laughs> That's great. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what an average day at work looks like? Because it's it's sounding pretty fun. Yeah, uh, I, some days are more fun than, than others, I'm sure. But <laughs> I usually, uh, I'll start from the, you know, waking up. So I have children. So I usually get those children sorted um, for school or prep. Um, and then I'll go to my office. Uh, I usually have a list of things that I've written down from the previous day. I'm a big list person, so I'll cross it off as I go. Uh, and the list will incorporate things like grant writing or lecture preparation, teaching preparation, or even uh, general meetings. So I have my calendar open as well, and I'll have meetings with my students or meetings with other uh, researchers that I collaborate with or even uh, administration meetings. So, for example, I'm on the equity committee for the University of Newcastle Faculty of Science because um, I'm huge about equity. Um, and, yeah, so we tend to, I tend to go through my list, uh, answer emails after that, uh, and then I'll go through my day depending on what's in my calendar. So it varies every day. Some days I'll just be writing the whole day. Some days I'll just be in meetings all day, and some days I'll just be teaching all day. I was able to get in the lab again last week, which is nice, but my students are much well equipped and have more time to go into the lab than me. 
and they do all the uh, amazing work that I then am able to publish. Yeah, so that's an average day. <laughs> that sounds really, that sounds pretty cool. It sounds like there's a nice rhythm, but there's also a nice little bit of diversity in there as well. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that sort of drew me to academia was the diversity. So I get bored very quick. And then you all my, uh, I did a lot of uh, work trying to go through my undergrad. So yeah, academia sort of uh, allows me to adjust to what I want to do for the day most of the time. That's awesome. So valuable. Did you want to talk a little bit about the equity work that you're involved with? Yeah, I, I'm not involved as much as I want to, but that's where I, I you know, because I'm still a young academic in respect to the others, so I'm not a professor or an associate professor. Um, so yeah, the area of equity I really want to focus on is to, especially in physics and engineering and maths and science in general, is making sure that there's uh, visible women in the careers so that uh, the young and up-and-coming scientists can go through and go, yes, I can be in academia as well. Yeah, there's a lot of drive to make sure that academics begin to get more equality with uh, male and females uh, because it's shown that as we progress in our career and going from my position to a professor position there's a lot less females going to that whether that's due to work or whatever Um, so yeah I really want to make sure that I put my place in there to ensure that we get uh, more females going through and getting promoted to the professorship so hopefully I'll be there too (laughs) well I will be Absolutely, no doubt. You've got a whole lot of really good skills that are coming together here. On that topic, are you able to share some of the skills that you think are really valuable to be able to do your job? Yeah, so I guess the number one uh, skill would be leadership, which I never thought would be something that I was good at, but I'm getting, I'm obviously good at it <laughs> at some point, you've got to realise. Um, so yeah, leadership and able the ability to juggle many tasks at once. Uh, so they're the two main ones that I would think because there's always so much going on in academia with teaching, PhD students, uh, just everything, outreach on administration roles. You just really need to be able to stay on top of it. Um, I guess the other one is communication skills. So not only with undergraduate students with lecturing uh, to keep them engaged, but also with your research group, uh, research community, and then also possible uh, collaborations. You really need to be able to uh, not sell yourself, but be able to describe your research uh, and anything you do at a level that they can understand at whatever level that is from prep schools when I go out to schools all the way up to professors. So um, communication and then also writing. I never knew how much writing was included in academia. But, yeah, like I said, some days I'll just be writing all day And that could be a grant application for lots of money um, or it could be a manuscript to publish. So, yeah, there's um, a really needed skill for academia. And sometimes it's somewhat neglected when you're doing undergrad and and then a PhD. So, yeah, I guess they're the skills that I would think that would be the most needed for my work. Do you feel like your working environment has helped support you develop those skills or did you start developing those skills a bit earlier than before you had this role? Yeah, some of them I would have developed as I went along, so I just adapted as I needed to. But there was a lot of skills that I think I would have learnt from mentors. So mentors have been a huge asset to me. Um, I had children, well, one through my PhD and one during my postdoc years. And I think at that point I could have easily just dropped out and just gone and got a job elsewhere. But I had really good mentors that, you know, kept me going 
and I still talk to today. So they were able to uh, tell me what skills I needed, in particular with grant writing. So sometimes people never learn how to write a proper grant, but if you have people there to help you, then the support really helps to make your career flourish. So yeah, I think having mentors and a support network in general is really important. That's really, really important. I think in a whole lot of careers, really. How did you go about getting your mentors? Do you have any advice for people who are sort of heading towards maybe different points in their career where they need to make decisions or need to really upskill? How do they find people who can support them in in that? Yeah, I think it's, uh, well, first, making sure you gravitate towards people that are like-minded. So you, you, I've always gravitated towards people that I want to be or that I aspire to. So I've got a few mentors that have I've just sort of gone to and had some conversations with uh, and they're really nice and so they've been able to help me. So I'll just email them out the blue and they'll be like, yes, do A, B and C. Um, I've also had some that have actually been my supervisor. So uh, my postdoc supervisor has been pivotal to my sort of career trajectory and well, two of them actually. So both of them have just been really helpful throughout. I can ask them any question, personal or career related, and they'll give me some really nice advice. So, and it's just people that have responded to well and we can just get along and be the people that were sort of supervisor that you want to be one day. Uh, Also, there's lots of, through Uh, academia there's a lot of support networks so I'm always the first person okay so I need to talk to someone and I'll just start emailing random people Um, and sometimes you'll hit a dead end and other times you'll spark a relationship which will really help you out for the rest of your career as well so both of those type of strategies have really helped me to find good mentors. I think that's brilliant advice reached out to people most people actually want to help I think yeah, most of them. Yeah. And you, you will learn quickly whether they do. So it's always really good just to give it a go. Yeah. What are you going to lose? Exactly. How have you ended up in this particular job? Like what has been your path, say, from high school to where you are now? Yeah, it seems like a long time now. Um, sometimes. Don't think too hard about it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I grew up in rural uh, Australia. So uh, in rural South Australia, I grew up all over Australia. But I did my high school degree, uh, high school years in um, Port Augusta, South Australia, many years ago. And I went to Adelaide thinking, yep, I'll go to uh, university. I'm one of seven children. So I was the first one to go to university. And I really enjoyed my sciences in high school. And my teacher was really good at making it exciting and telling me, oh, yeah, you're quite good at this. So uh, he gave me the little push to go to university and study science. Um, I did my honours year in nanotechnology at Flinders Uni, and that's where I sort of fell in love with research. Um, So just developing or even investigating new concepts that haven't been done before really attracted me. It was really satisfying. (laughs) So I decided to do a PhD at the University of South Australia, partly because I couldn't get a job, but partly because I really knew I wanted to do research. And uh, so that was a really good move for me. I really enjoyed my PhD and I learned a lot. Um, And then my final year, I was like, yeah, let's just make it harder and throw in a baby. So I did that. It worked out well, obviously. (laughs) Um, And she's in my acknowledgements, little Ella. Uh, which is not so little, she's eight now. But yeah, so once I finished my PhD just after maternity leave, I was able to get a postdoc back at Flinders University with one of my aspiring professors that I really liked. 
um, and he was one of my mentors. Uh, so I did a few postdocs with him. Uh, one thing that people don't understand that after you do a PhD and start doing postdocs, you get really limited uh, contracts. So they'll be really short uh, and often you have to move around a bit. So I went back to University of South Australia to do another postdoc, had another baby, uh, and I was offered a postdoc to go to New Zealand in Wellington. So uh, I dragged my family, my husband from uh, England, who was went to Australia for the warm weather, to Windy Wellington, who was always cold a lot. <laughs> but but uh, it was actually a really good move. So he hated it to start with, but once we got there, it was really great for all of us. So within um, two years, I got a lecturing position at Victoria University of Wellington, which was fantastic. But we really wanted to come back to Australia. So uh, I went to a well, we all went to a conference here in Newcastle, fell in love with the beaches and obviously the sort of rural nature of it and uh, applied for a position, didn't think I'd get it and I got it. And here I am a year and a half later, enjoying the warmer weather, the mosquitoes <laughs> and uh, rural living. So it's been fantastic. It sounds like it's all come together really well for you. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, it seems like a simple pathway, but I'm sure there was a lot of diversions along the way. And there's always challenges and all all the things that happened that weren't necessarily the plan, etc. Exactly. Yeah. But we we tend to just go with the flow. That's my motto. <laughs> I think it's a good motto. Within that path, was there any sort of really pivotal moments for you, which was the point at which you were like, "Yes, this this is where I want to go." This is what where like this is how I want to do it. Yeah, I guess uh, my science teacher was the one who really sort of said, "Hey, you're quite good at science," so that sort of helped me go in that direction. Um, the research or academia direction was a bit later, so I didn't even know what a PhD was growing up, and that's one of the reasons why I really like to do rural outreach because that's where I came from. <laughs> but yeah, so. When I started doing research, that's when I sort of knew that that's what I loved. It was really captivating to me and it was addictive. So I stuck with research and then I was like, oh, okay, so the way to keep doing research is to become an academic. Uh, Do I want to teach undergrad? And I was like, well, actually, yeah, I enjoy teaching. And it was when I started teaching uh, other PhD students and being supportive mentors to them as well and seeing the benefits that it really drew me to this path. So um, yeah, the teaching the up and coming next generation of academics and scientists is really quite nice to me. I really enjoy it. Um, but yeah, obviously the research really gets me as well. So yeah, I yeah I'm lucky that I'm one of the people that really love their job. So my husband's completely different. He just works so he can surf, whereas I really love my job. So yeah, it's really good. <laughs> it makes getting up in the morning so much easier if you love your job. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Maybe not when you have a baby, but it makes it a little bit hard. <laughs> but no, generally it's really good. Well, just getting up in the morning when you have a baby is <laughs> yeah a challenge. <laughs> Speaking of getting up in the morning, what is the thing that gets you really excited and helps you go into work with that enthusiasm? Like what is the bit that you really, really love? It would definitely be finding new discoveries. So, yeah, it, even just recently my uh, – wonderful amazing PhD student Grima Dobell wrote a manuscript that got published into scientific reports and it was on the fact that we could find these uh, nanoparticles that cells release in breath 
So it's really interesting because that could be a potential use for a disease breathalyzer. If we can use these nanoparticles from cells to define whether a cell is cancerous or not, and we can find them in breath, then that opens up a new avenue for disease diagnosis. That's just one example that, yeah, I just love finding new things. It's just one of the things that really draws me to research. But then also, you know, teaching Garima and Shiana, all the wonderful PhD students that I have, uh, how to do research as well and seeing them flourish and become the researchers they want to be is really very rewarding. And it sounds like your research, like it all has the potential to be applied and to actually really change the world as well. Yeah, I mean, I think any researcher can have applications which could be potentially life-changing. And I, one thing that I've always been taught by my mentors is just to aim blue for blue sky research, stuff that you would never think would happen. And that's how we can make discoveries. So we might find out that the breathalyzer that I'm proposing will never work because of X, Y, and Z. But just having that possibility uh, really helps you to keep going with that. So yeah, it's important to know that not all research will get to the, to the application, the desired application, but it's still rewarding to do it. And you also never know who you're going to inspire with that idea. Like your solution might not work, but just the idea that that solution could be out there might inspire a whole other group of people to go hunting for it and to find a completely different path towards it. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> Is there any advice, like if you could go back and speak to yourself while you're at high school, is there any advice you'd like to give young people, particularly, say, rural and remote people considering this kind of career? Definitely, yeah. Uh, It is hard, um, but it's also possible. So that would be the one thing. But also to make sure you've got your mentors. So even if it's just a group of friends through your undergrad, it's really helpful to have that. Uh, going from a rural town to university, you often do it on your own. So making sure that you have access to people that will help you through is really important at any stage of your career, especially if you're postdocing and having to move everywhere. The other thing is to make sure about imposter syndrome. So one thing I wasn't aware is that most academics have this term imposter syndrome. Um, I thought I was the only one, and most of us do. But knowing that we all have doubts is really important to remember and that's where the support networks come in so they can sort of slap you back into positive mode knowing that you you are awesome, you do amazing things and that you deserve to be where you are. Are you up for describing a little bit of how like you've experienced imposter syndrome or some key things to look out for for people? Because I think often it just sort of comes out of the blue and you're like, oh, I didn't know this was a thing. (laughs) Absolutely. That's the best way to put it. All of a sudden you'll just be writing an email or doing something generic and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, am I supposed to be doing this? Am Am I really a doctor right now and researching all this amazing stuff? Um, Yeah, and I guess I got it a lot when I had leaves of absences as well. So, or even moving to a new institution. So going to going from maternity leave back to work, I really experienced it tough then because it's been so long since I'd done anything. And then going to work and having all these expectations laid out. But obviously, I I sort of uh, actually one of my new favourite mentors. She said. What, uh, what does it do when you get this imposter syndrome? And I, I said, well, it makes me think about how I can stop it and so I actually do better. 
So I actually use it as a driving force now. So she said, well, now you know that when you get this imposter syndrome, you can use it to your advantage and get the work outcomes you want. So that's one thing I would definitely recommend to someone. If it's not going to be, if it's not detrimental to your work or to you, uh, use it to your advantage. But yeah, it's definitely, it rears its head up. Having that support network to tell you that you're good really helps, but then also making sure you've got the confidence in yourself. I reckon that's fantastic advice. I love the idea of like trying to turn it around and turn it into a little bit of a superpower if you can at all. Exactly. I love the superpower. Yes. And I'm not going to take uh, credit for that. That was definitely a mentor. And she's, if she listens, she'll know who it is. That's that's really cool. And I think being more open about things like imposter syndrome is valuable for absolutely everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, getting the narrative out there, having the discussions, how people deal with it has been really good. And I think as uh, we get more groups of women academics as well, uh, we discuss it, but I've also discussed it a lot with the male academics as well. So there's some people who don't like to talk about it, but I think it's really good to talk about it with everyone. Definitely. I can't see how it would hurt anyone. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Is there any way mature people who maybe they've already got a career, but they're really interested in nanotech maybe they're interested in physics is there is there any way that they can be involved with your research is there any kind of like citizen science or something like that I think that's a fantastic idea um actually there was a new academic that's just started recently and had a similar idea about getting the older generations to come in and do some science but it's not been in fruition yet um so but what they can do right now is well one thing is just to email me so most academics will love to talk about their research obviously um but also they'll respond to emails so you can just go onto any university website and find an area of interest find the academics involved and you can email them i mean just showing initiative like that will get a response usually uh, but yeah, also there's lots of online content and also, you know, stuff like this, listening to podcasts is amazing. And also the radio uh, segments will always have a bit of science in there. So I guess that's the main thing that we could do. But hopefully, you know, in the future, there will be those little platforms where we can have citizen science. That sounds amazing. I just think it, particularly with the nanotech stuff, like it kind of... Well, there's a, at the back of your brain, there's a, there's a little bit of the kind of robot army is going to take over the world, but there's also like it's quite a delightful, inspiring thing. These teeny tiny thing, these teeny tiny particles up to stuff, and I can I can definitely see people wanting to somehow engage with it or embrace it. Yeah, and I guess it's also evolved so much. So from whenever they might have done science to now, there are so many new techniques or things have evolved to be even better, that, yeah, they could definitely find interests um, in the areas. Yeah, definitely. Be cool. There's your new challenge. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Is there anything that you wish the general public understood, either about your job or about nanotechnology? Obviously, I brought up robot armies, which is probably inappropriate, but... Um... <laughs> Yeah, is there anything you wish, any misconceptions that are out there that you'd like to squash? Yeah, I guess the main thing is that we are people as well, like we're not these weirdos. <laughs> Weird science people sitting in a lab all day. Um, the the science people, the academics? Yeah, <laughs> both. <laughs> yeah, so I, I tend to, when people uh, know what I do, 
they sort of I think they get a bit scared and so I'm always reluctant to say what my career is but for the people who do that's fine they love it uh but yeah I guess the commitment yeah I, I hopefully it seems to be changing but most academics will do more than their usual workable hours so it could be up to 60 hours a week and oh man like through COVID with the online transition I was working 12 hour days for a while there just to get stuff done but that's a whole nother segment (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so just the commitment to our work is quite excessive and then we've got all these different roles so we're not just a scientist we're not just a teacher but yeah we're also a leader in our research group so yeah it's, it's quite a dynamic role So possibly for anyone who's got the ivory tower in mind where you're sort of like sheltered from the real world or that sort of stuff, maybe that's not the most fair or accurate representation of your role. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think knowing that we're just normal people as well doing our job, but yeah, that we do awesome things, but everyone's got their superpower. (laughs) I'm going to use that word again. Um, So yeah. I always get told, oh, you must be smart. And I'm like, yeah, but you're probably smart in whatever job you do. So, yeah, I wouldn't think that I would be this genius at all. I'm just a normal person that enjoys science. Which is great. And I think we do need to start eroding away at the idea that science can only be done by geniuses because it's just, it's not accurate. Everyone can do some kind of science. Everyone can contribute. Yeah, and that's uh, one of my passions as well is to sort of develop science experiments that we can do within schools but then also at home so kids can take these experiments home so I do one with nappies which is just funny but um, nappies they can go home and say look mum dad let's do science with this nappy (laughs) and get them involved so yeah I do a lot of outreach and that's one of my passions that I do when I have time. How do you do science with a nappy? So now that everyone can listen and do science with a nappy. So you can grab a nappy, you can cut it open uh, where the sort of wee goes, and uh, you would think that the cotton wool, so you can start to think, well, how does a nappy actually work? And so when you cut it open, you'll see that there's sort of wool in there or cotton, and you can pull that out, and you'll also see these little balls, these little sandy-type feeling balls, so you can sort of squish it around in your hands and go, oh, okay, So let's add water to either the cotton or these little tiny white sandy balls. And you'll notice that it's actually these polymer balls that soak up all the wee. So you can do a little experiment where you can see how much it absorbs. Um, And you could put a teaspoon of this little sandy stuff in a cup and start adding teaspoons of water. And you can do the same thing with the cotton just for comparative nature. Um, And you'll find that it absorbs a hell of a lot. And it's similar to what you put in the gardens. So the uh, gardens that absorb the water and keeps the water in there for longer, it's the same thing. So you can even take this uh, polymer sand out, add the water and add it to your garden. (laughs) It's the exact same polymer, exact same material, and it will keep it wetter for longer. You can also add salt and it will completely ruin it. (laughs) You'll get rid of your little gel crystals with water in it and it will just turn back to water. So really nice experiment. Fantastic. What happens if we add coffee? Add coffee. So do you mean liquid form? 
Yeah, I'm just curious, like, if salt's going to ruin it, like, are there other, or like Coca-Cola or other liquids, what happens? Yeah, well, that would be another good experiment. Maybe that can be a challenge for the listeners. But I I would assume that it would depend. So it's the actual salt. So salt beams, sodium ions and chloride ions goes in there and just breaks it all up. So if that's in coffee or coke then it would do the same thing i would think coke would just completely demolish it and probably eat the way eat away at the container that it's in (laughs) fantastic i'm really really hoping that there's a listener out there who is going to like has got really excited and is going to do this experiment and send me an email with a a graph that'd be amazing (laughs) having just like dropped that beautiful little bombshell in is there anything else you'd like to add or that we haven't touched on yet before we wrap up no, um, I think the only thing I would say is that if you're interested in my work and uh, or anything I do, yeah, just email me. So I've got these uh, lots of physics content as well on the university website. Um, so it's called Fantastic Physics. So you can have a look on there. I'd love to get other ideas. So if you're a school teacher, just e- uh, email me and be like, oh, you know, I really want some help on this area. Can you get some content for that? And I'll be more than happy to help because I want to know what's sort of needed. But yeah, other than that, it's uh, that's it. Yeah, just email me. <laughs> that sounds great. And we will include uh, Renee's email and also uh, some links to some different experiments, some some of her research, and also the fantastic physics uh, links. They'll all be included in the show notes. Great. And finally, just just as we wrap up, is there anyone you'd like to give a virtual high five to anyone, a business or a group of researchers, anyone who's just doing an awesome job at the moment? Oh, this is going to be a long list. I'll try and keep it short. (laughs) Firstly, like the mentors that I've had. So Thomas Nam's a researcher here now, but he was also a supervisor. So it's quite nice to have him here. We've just come to the same place, which is nice. He's been a huge uh, pivotal uh, person in my um, career path. Uh, Joe Schapter, he's in Queensland. He's another awesome uh, researcher and mentor. And also Sally MacArthur from Swinburne. She's amazing. So if you ever see, hear about her research, I'm sure you'll be just as amazed. But she's an amazing person also, just like all of them. Um, my PhD students, they're the really ones who do all the great research work. So Grima Dobel, Shaina Malholtra, and Zarina Mohaved Amen and Zainab Ayad, who's stuck in Tunisia because of COVID. Uh, oh, no. To come home soon. Also, Zarina's stuck in New Zealand, so hopefully she'll come back in the, in the bubble. But, yeah, so my research group is just amazing. Uh, I'm, like, I'm so ecstatic that I've got an amazing group of women um, they're all really strong and um, I know that they're going to pass on hopefully what I'm passing on to them um, in the years. So we'll see a lot more women in science. So awesome. Very, very inspiring. Yes, they are. <laughs> Go change the world. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Renee. It's been an absolute pleasure and I can't wait to hear what our listeners do with the experiments you've suggested. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so nice. I loved it. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being. And you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks. Thanks.